Morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. Glad you could be with us. It's good to be back with you. Thank you for your indulgence last week as I was here on video. I only preached once. I'm feeling better today, but I promise you I'll cough a few times. But don't worry. Don't call the medics. I think I'm going to be fine. So uh, let's pray together and then we begin. Father, thanks that we can gather here within these walls listening for your voice. We, tr- we pray and trust and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us, Father, and we're mindful that uh, we live in days when we're collectively aware of um, the state of the world and, and the anxiety that uh, seems to hover in our midst. I pray, Father, that you would just speak to each of our hearts now, Father, in order that we might be shaped to be people of hope who represent your heart well. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the advantages of being ill is the opportunity to do a little extra reading. I don't get to do that as much when my week is packed, Uh, but I was privileged to read this last week, a book entitled Grounded, colon, Finding God in the World. And I began with a quote from that book because uh, the author's articulating the vast change that's happening in American Christianity right now. I mean, we are in the midst of a change we may or may not necessarily feel it here at Bethany, but it's a, it's a profound change going on. And our calling remains the same. We're called to shine as light in the midst of our city and our nation, our world. But uh, we have to think, we have to rethink how we do our faith, how we practice our faith if we're going to do this well. So uh, I'm just now picking up from the author as she writes, after World War II, Getting back to normal was the key task for mid-20th century people, even if normal was irretrievably gone. Uh, revivals of religion swept through Western nations to restore order and familiarity. First in the 50s, then again in the 70s. The faithful baptized legions of post-war offspring, built bigger and taller temples than had ever been known before, and exercised more influence and political power than Christianity had known since the Middle Ages, the days of Pope Innocent III. All of this was a testimony to God's victory over the forces of evil and the triumph of true religion, but it would not last, indeed could not last. Uh, This kind of religion depends, as the author continues, on a three-tiered universe. We're in the middle, God's up here, hell is down here, and the focal point of this kind of religion is uh, your eternal destiny and assuring that you move up, not down. That's often, in a reductionistic fashion, the essence of fundamentalist Christianity. How can I change my, my destiny? And uh, the author articulates beautifully in this uh, book that that view of God is increasingly viewed as irrelevant by people who drive by. No one's interested in hell or heaven anymore. And I would argue that that view is not only irrelevant, but unbiblical, that we need a different view, actually. And it's a different view that we want to see in our time this morning, and also as we move into Advent very quickly here. Because in the, in, in the season of Advent, we celebrate many things, but one of the things that we celebrate is this. Do you remember this? You shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. Can we say it again? God with us. In other words, that with, that preposition was very, very important. It's not that we're trying to get up here. It's that God has come down here. And, and so our calling then collectively 
having been now filled with nothing less than the resurrected Jesus, our calling is to make God visible here in our city. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we come into Romans 8, because our calling to live as people of light and hope is, is challenging. We live in a time of great anger, great cynicism, great fear, great disengagement. These problems are not the purview of any uh, particular political party. It's, it's across the board, left and right, anger, fear, cynicism, disengagement. And, and so we want to talk this morning about how we live in a world filled with suffering, uh, paradise, campfires, 1,200 missing, 600 dead, a shooting in Thousand Oaks, other shootings in schools, racism, fear, hatred, inflammatory rhetoric, anger. It's all around us, and we're called to live differently in the midst of that. And so how do we live as people of hope, bringing the light of Christ down into our world? That's what I'm going to talk about this morning. And, and, and so we begin uh, with uh, looking at Paul and three declarative statements that he offers, and then we look at the, the implications of those statements. But we want to begin with these three declarative statements. Uh, there's, a, there's a new identity that's given to us, and, and, a, and a renewed body, and a renewed creation. So we're called to live as people of hope for those three reasons. We have a new identity. This new identity is changing our body even, our, not just our spirit, but our body. And this changed our relationship with creation. So let's look at those three things, beginning with our new identity. So in Romans 8, uh, if you were here last week, you remember Romans 7 is this kind of battle going on inside of us. Do you remember what Paul said last week, if you were here? Paul said, hey, the good things that I want to do, what? I don't do. And the bad things that I don't want to do, I do. And so then I try harder, and I still fail. And then I rededicate my life to Jesus, and I, and I, and I still fail. And then if I'm a Baptist, I get baptized again and again, and again, and I, st- and I still fail, right? And so kind of the question is, hey, wh- what's it going to take for me to move out of this constant battle with this piece of me that seems to sin? And Paul's conclusion, uh, Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And as soon as he says who, hope begins because he's turned away from looking inward and he's looking external to himself. He's saying essentially what, what, what you say in AA, I am powerless to deliver myself. And as soon as I say that, the door is open for me to receive now a power outside of myself. And the outside power which we declare and we gather here this morning to celebrate is this, the risen Jesus lives in you and will now empower you to live a life you could never live on your own. And so that's why Paul's conclusion at the end of Romans 7 is, thanks be to God who gives us victory through who? Christ. Christ can live a life that I can't live. The Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible. I can't live it, but Jesus never said I could. He said, I desire for you to live in such a posture of openness and receptivity that I now infuse you with nothing less than my resurrection life so that my joy becomes your joy, my wisdom, your wisdom, my hope, your hope. My mercy, your mercy, my generosity, your generosity, you're called to be nothing less than Jesus in the world, right? So you have this new identity. But then, if you have a new identity, you still carry around with you the flesh, like your old identity. And Galatians 5 says that's going to be a battle until the day you die. So many of us are discouraged because we're like, why is this still here? Why is there still a piece of me that doesn't, that doesn't want to do the right thing? Remember those cartoons when you were little? 
There's a devil over here on a shoulder, and there's an angel over here on a shoulder, and you're, you're somebody, Sam, or who, Bugs Bunny, or whoever you are, and, or, you know, I'm, I know I'm dating myself by giving you those two as examples, but, like, there, there's a voice calling you to higher ground, and a voice calling you to the flesh, right? As a, there's a battle going on, and then, and then what Paul's trying to get us away from in Romans 8 is the notion that we can ever improve the flesh, because this is what he says regarding the flesh. Uh, verse six, uh, the mindset of the flesh is death. So when I, whenever I'm in the flesh, it's death. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, verse seven. And verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when the origin of my work, whatever I'm doing in any given moment, including preaching, if it's out from the flesh, it's like there's no fruit in it. It's death, it's hostile to God, it can't please God. So God is in, intensely interested in the origin of our work. Is it from the flesh or from the spirit, right? And so all of this stuff is still true for all of us in the room. When you're in the flesh, you're hostile to God. You can't please God. And, and the fruit of your works is going to be death. That's all of us in the room. And that would be bad news except for verse 9. Because look at verse 9. You, however, you, that's we who are gathered here this morning who claim Christ. Watch this. <coughs> you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So like your most fundamental identity is what? Christ living in you, you have a brand new spirit and that's the true you. That's the you that's gonna live forever. That's the you intended to animate your daily living so that the spirit within you infuses your mind, your will, your emotions, as we'll see in a moment, your body, so that you begin to look more and more and more and more like Christ. You are not in the flesh, you're not. So when you're living in the flesh, it's annoying because it's, it, you're now living in dissonance to your truest identity. Does this make sense? Like you're not aligned anymore with your truest identity. How many have had this experience in the room? My wife and I uh, had, um, like our ongoing battle, I guess, has to do with um, drawers in our kitchen where extra stuff is stored, right? <laughs> so I pulled a drawer out this week and I was not feeling well, so I'm not at my, I'm not at my holiest self. I pull a drawer out, and it got stuck that I couldn't open the drawer. And I'm like this. What a, this is ridiculous. Like, why is there so much junk in here? This makes no sense. And I start, you know, it's not my drawer, but suddenly I take ownership, and I'm, I'm pulling stuff out, just pulling stuff out. And then my wife comes in, and she goes, oh, here we go again, you know. And then it escalates a little bit, and I'm like, How, why are you hoarding stuff? This is ridiculous. Like, I'm drawn to this kind of zen life where there's nothing in the room, and she's, you know, it's full, and I kick the drawer out. And I'm, so I'm throwing things, like, out of the drawer, boom, boom, you know. And then, like, an hour later, I look back, and I'm like this. Are you kidding me? Like, that is not who I, that's not me. Like, in the spirit, I'd be like this, honey, could we have a little discussion about um, the drawer, right? And, you know, I, I'm going to reflect back to you my feelings, you know, you know, when the drawer's messy, I just feel like you might be collecting a few too many things, and could we talk about this, how do you feel, you know? And instead, no, boom, 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 oh, and there you are, boom, you know? Why is that? That's the flesh, do you understand? And, and so when you're living that way, you're out of alignment with your truest identity. And all of us in the room have these, I call them, they're not, I, we call them out-of-body experiences. We look back and we go, that wasn't me. It's not an out-of-body experience. It's an out-of-spirit experience. Does that make sense? 
Like you look back and you go, that wasn't even me. Yeah, we all have those. And so what Paul is saying here that's worth celebrating is this, that's not who you are. So don't even worry about it. God's already judged it. It's over. Forget it. Confess it. Move on. And begin again to live in the what? Out from the power of the Spirit. Because that's, that's your, kind of your truest identity. And here's the thing. You're a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You are. You, this just is who you are. You're a new creation. You don't always feel like a new creation, do you? No, neither do I. But it doesn't matter. That's ontologically true if you're a philosopher in the room. And for the rest of you, it's just true. Okay? It's fine. Don't even worry about it. It's just true. This is your identity. Whether you feel it or not, whether you like it or not, even when you, whether you want it or not, your spirit, that's who you are. So we, the best life for me is going to be out from that spirit. Out from that spirit. Now, uh, this is kind of something that we, people instinctively know even who drive by right now. Go to a yoga class and, you know, people meditate at the end of their class often and they do this thing, and they, and they look at other people, and what do they say? Does anyone know the word? Yeah, many of you know it. A lot of yoga pra- practitioners in the room, right? Namaste, what does namaste mean? The, do you know what it means? It means I acknowledge the, the divine in you. So before you get your heresy antenna in a tither here, right? <laughs> you know, universalist. Hey, don't even worry about it. Forget about that. That's not at all what I'm saying. All I'm saying is this. There's something in there that, from which we can learn. Do you understand? Because what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? From now on, I determine to know, no longer know anyone according to the flesh. So when my wife and I get in this thing about drawers, like we can look back and we go, oh yeah, I get it. We had this fight, but that wasn't really, that's not who I am. I really am not that. I'm patience. So I'm not, I'm not living out from the flesh. I'm not, and so when, when Nathan bugs me, I go, you know what, I, I want to see Christ in you, and, and that's our basis of fellowship. We all hurt each other, but what Paul is saying is, in a sense, right, look, Christ is in him. He's made in the image of God. Live there. This makes us people of hope in the world. So that's our calling. We have a new identity. And so I encourage you, so why we talking about having a rule of life around here, like spiritual practices. This is why meditating on your identity in Christ is so very important. There's this um, old song that when I was younger, we used to sing at camp. It, was, it went like this. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. You know, and the blind to see. And then remember this, spring up a well. You know, and we did this thing like this. Well, dumb song, right? Two chords, who, who cares? That's why it's gone. But the truth remains. Do you understand what I mean? The truth remains. And what's the truth? You do have a river of life. Jesus said it, John 7. You're thirsty, come to me, drink. I will fill you with divine life so that you pour out into the desert that is this world. So get on with it, man, and be life. How do you do that? You've got, you got to begin to meditate on who you are in Christ, identity truths. Uh, and so you can find those, like we have on our website and different places, but I just, every morning, I, I meditate on some aspect, like I am complete in Christ, or I have the peace of Christ, or uh, I, like I, I'm gifted in Christ, or I'm made new in Christ, I'm adopted, you know. As we begin to meditate on these things, we, we actually begin to believe them, and as we believe them, we're going to live out from that truth. So, 
new identity. Second thing, you have a renewed body. Isn't that awesome? Renewed body. Look at this. Verse, uh, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But then, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your, watch this, your mortal body through the spirit. Isn't this interesting? Christ will give life to your mortal body. So this speaks not only to the hope of the resurrection, which we already know about, but here, Paul is very specific. Like a new spirit will change your what? Mortal body. In other words, there are bodily benefits to following Christ. Did you know that? Here's, I'll give you an example. Psalm 32, David says, hey, when I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. In other words, if you're harboring bitterness, that's not just a spiritual problem. That will become for you a physiological problem. You're harboring bitterness? You, I mean, I've seen it. I've seen people stuck in a decades-long lawsuit, like a personal lawsuit, two families, and I watched it affect them physiologically. Like, like it, their, their capacity to sleep well and their capacity to make eye contact with other people. I've seen people, you know, racked with bitterness and it, and it presents physiologically. So we want to learn to forgive and get over it because this, this is one of the ways that we receive life in our mortal body. Uh, David says in Psalm 5, look, when I'm, when I'm uh, dwelling on the love of Christ, and he wouldn't say Christ, but he would say God, when I'm dwelling on the love of God, Psalm 5, he says, God gives us sleep. Like there's this, we're called to this shalom sense, and to the extent that we experience shalom means less worry about tomorrow. And less worry about tomorrow, because my confidence is in, in God as my guide and my provider, less worry about tomorrow means more peace. And more peace means less self-medicating, right? Now, this is not a promise of a disease-free life. This is not an encouragement for you to flush your meds down the toilet or anything like that. Second Corinthians 5 says, as long as you have a moral body, you're going to groan in pain. So this is not like perfection, but it's also true. There's a measure of healing. Like when we align our lives with Christ, there's a measure of healing. That's just, it's, it's true. I sleep better when I'm aligned with Christ. And, and uh, when I confess my sin, I'm not looking over my shoulder, wondering if the real me is going to be discovered. And so, so there's a peace. And when I let go of things and forgive instead of, instead of harboring bitterness, there's a physiological response. Because bitterness, anger, fear, worry, all lead to stress. Stress leads to cortisol. Cortisol leads to more disease. Like your immune system goes down and, and, you, and you don't sleep as well. So God is saying something profound here, right? Like we as Christ followers are called to be people of peace. And when we align our lives with the revelation of what God wants for our lives, there's a, there's a physical manifestation. It's so ironic that I'm preaching this while I'm sick, right? And, and yet, there, I mean, the, the reality is like... I preach Sabbath and making sure you have a day of restoration. I preach a rhythm of work and rest. But when I got sick on November 4th, I looked at my calendar and I went, oh, my last day off was October 13th. And so I violated my own, I mean, God's thing, right? And I got sick. And so now I'm able to say, oh, thank you, Lord, for teaching me here. Again, this truth that when we align our lives with, with God's principles, there's a physiological 
uh, effectiveness, right? And, and, and so I want to encourage you, like, for example, if you're having a hard time sleeping because you wake up in the night and you're worried, you're worried about the tomorrow or you're regretting about the, about the past or your mind is just spinning with a lot of things that you know you need to do and you want to make sure you don't forget. Who's ever had this? You wake up in the middle of the night and your mind is running too quickly. This is like a Western problem. And, and so Psalm 5 rings to me. God gives us sleep. Like, isn't that beautiful? Well, how can we have sleep? Well, we can just appropriate the peace of God. And this is why a habit of meditation is valuable. Like I literally inhale, and as I'm inhaling, I say, Lord, I receive your peace. And then I exhale and I say, thank you. And then I inhale, I receive your peace. And then I exhale, I say, thank you. And then I inhale and then I exhale and I'm gone. I'm asleep, right? I remember sharing this years ago. And someone uh, came up to me afterwards and said, what a dumb idea. Like, uh, that's never going to work. Like, sleep is a, is a problem. Like, it's, yeah, I take drugs. I said, well, you know, fine. But maybe next time, before you take drugs, why don't you try this, right? Inhale, receive your peace. Exhale, thank you. He comes back to me a couple weeks later. He says, you're not going to believe it. It worked. I said, well, why, why wouldn't I believe it? I told you. <laughs> it was my idea, right? Not my idea. God's idea. But do you see? Like, how cool would it be if God's people were known not just as people with a new spirit, a new identity, and a different ethic, but as people of peace who physiologically present as not healed, but as people who enjoy the benefits of following Christ. That's the second thing. Third thing is a renewed creation. Because in verse 19 it says... Creation is eagerly awaiting our transformation. Creation. Isn't that weird? What does that mean? Well, there's no question among either political party that the fate of the earth is tied to the fate of humanity. Everybody agrees. In the present, we think about climate change, fires, floods, water quality in Flint, Michigan, lack of water in the San Joaquin Valley in California, which is like the breadbasket of America. We think about the exponential rights, uh, rises in the rates of cancer as our food chain has become industrialized. We think about the famine in Yemen. We think about nerve gas in Syria. We go, man, what a mess, right? But we tend to think as well often that this is a 21st century problem. It's not. The, it, there's always been a problem with the environment. Go back a little further, Chernobyl right? Nuclear reactor. Go back a little further. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Go back a little further. World War I and the deforestation of much of Europe because of the war. Go back a little further. The deforestation of Great Britain. Go back a little bit further. The Babylonian Empire came in and they burned down the cedar forest of Lebanon. Go back a little bit further. Second Chronicles chapter 26 verse 21 reads that the Babylonians came in and they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they, they killed a bunch of people, then they took everybody else captive, and so there was no one left in the land. And Second Chronicles 26, 21, when there's no one left in the land, this is the verse, then the land enjoyed Sabbath rest. Don't you love that? Here's the land. Ah, finally, the people are gone. <laughs> Thanks be to God, right? Like, the streams will clear up again. The, the, the habitat will be restored. Life will happen again because wherever there are humans, they mess it up. Like that's Romans 8. Creation is waiting for our redemption. Well, here's the deal. We're redeemed. So we're called to live differently now. 
1938, the U.S. Soil and Conservation Service sent its chief researcher, whose name is Dr. Loudermilk, if you care, <laughs> they sent him to study the history of soil erosion around the world. And so he concentrated on the beginnings of human agriculture 7,000 years ago in Mesopotamian Egypt. And Loudermilk reported that most early civilizations were laid waste not by plague or war, but by soil erosion, loss of topsoil, poor grazing and plowing practices, the destruction of forests, and the silting of streams and rivers. Uh, and uh, describing his team's disappointment, he said, it never needed to be this way. We hoped when we crossed the Jordan River that we would go into a, quote, land of milk and honey, but found instead denuded highlands, abandoned village sites, and raped unproductive soil because humans don't know how to care for the earth. This guy's not a Christian necessarily. He's just saying we don't ever get it right. That's why creation is groaning. That's why creation is awaiting our redemption because when we're redeemed, we'll stop raping the land and start stewarding it. We'll stop viewing the earth as a shopping mall of minerals and resources and view it as a temple and place of worship. As a result, our redemption means our lifestyles will change, our consumer choices will change, we'll learn from creation, we'll care for creation, we'll worship in creation, we will treat the land differently, we'll enter into our calling as an image bearer, Genesis chapter 2, taking up our vocation to, quote, tend the earth and sustain it. We're called to sustain the earth, all of us are. And so wouldn't it be nice if Christians not only slept better, but were also part of the solution rather than part of the problem with regard to the environment? This is what it means to bring heaven down to earth, you see. Uh, if you're a Dostoevsky fan in the room, and I hope someone is, uh, Brothers Karamazov is this great epic book about these uh, four brothers, their relationship with their dad. One of the protagonists is this very spiritual man named Alyosha, but his spirituality is very much this three-tiered thing, like he's up in heaven. And uh, 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 a priest whom he respected, Father Zosima, dies. And Alyosha is convinced that because he was so holy, his body would not undergo decay. When his body finally does undergo decay, as it inevitably would, uh, it changes Alyosha's view of Christianity. And I pick it up now and read. Here's Alyosha. Filled with rapture, his soul yearned for freedom, space, uh, and vastness. Over him, the heavenly dome, full of quiet shining stars, hung boundlessly. Because ha this happened at night. From zenith to the horizon, the still dark Milky Way stretched his stubble strand. Night, fresh and quiet, almost unstirring, enveloped the earth. Uh, white towers, golden domes of the church were gleaming in the sapphire sky. The luxuriant autumn flowers in the flower beds near the house had fallen asleep until morning. The silence of the earth seemed to merge with the silence of the heavens. The mystery of the earth touched the mystery of the stars. Alyosha stood, gazing, and suddenly, as if he'd been cut down, he threw himself to the earth. Is that not the best writing you've ever read? And then this is what he says. He didn't know why he was embracing it. He didn't try to understand why he longed so irresistibly to kiss it, to kiss all of it. But kiss it he did. He was kissing the earth, weeping, sobbing, watering with his tears. Kissing the earth, he vowed ecstatically to love it, to love it until the ages of ages. This is your calling. Not to wait until you die and go to heaven, but to kiss the earth. You know what that means? Not just, not just enjoy Green Lake. It means that. Not just steward Green Lake, it means that. But it means to kiss the earth, you're here. <laughs> Be the presence of Christ here. 
at Amazon, at Microsoft, at Google, at Facebook, in your political party, in the midst of corruption, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of disease, in the hospital, in the bedroom, in the boardroom, in the kitchen. You are Christ. Kiss the earth. This is where God has placed us to be the presence of hope in the midst of despair. And all of creation is waiting for us to show up. <laughs> and the reason that uh, this woman wrote this book called Grounded is, is she says the church has basically abdicated our responsibility to show up. We're asking everyone to come in rather than going out and being the presence of Christ. We must be Christ in our world. Kiss the earth. So the result of all of this should be confidence. Kind of a threefold confidence. Confidence in prayer, confidence in, confidence in suffering, and confidence in all things. Confidence in prayer because of this. It says in the text, when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. Many of us don't pray because we don't know how to pray. In other words, we don't know what to pray in a particular situation. Does that make sense? Someone has cancer and we're like, should I pray for healing? I don't know. What if they're not healed? Then what will happen to me, you know? Or what will happen to my faith? And so we don't, we're not quite sure how to pray. We don't know how to pray about uh, paradise and fire and homelessness. We don't know how to pray about politics. We don't know how to pray about our neighbor. We don't know how to pray for our spouse. We don't know. God is calling. <laughs> we don't know how to pray. But the text is saying, look, when you pray, the Holy Spirit translates your prayer. So just pray. Do you know who got this? Eastern Orthodox Christians got this. They have this thing called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And uh, they simply pray. All, they just repeat that all, all the time. And we evangelicals were suspect of that sometimes. We go, oh, that's kind of vain repetition. No, it's not. Not if you're bringing yourself to it and actually praying. There's nothing wrong with repetition. It's only wrong if it's empty repetition. Do you see? So these guys are praying all the time. Uh, we had a locksmith come repair, uh, uh, put new, like, rekey our house at the pass. And we couldn't find any, it was hard to find anybody to come up there. Finally, this guy from Ellensburg comes up. And uh, after, like, calling several locksmiths, he shows up. And I immediately knew this guy, I suspected immediately this guy was Eastern Orthodox. He had a long beard. He had a hat on that no one would ever wear, right? And it just had this, this aura about him, like an aura of peace. And so I, being completely politically incorrect, I said, you look like you're Eastern Orthodox. He says, exactly, yes, I am. And so then we had this long theological discussion. And then I said to him, hey, I know you guys are into praying without ceasing, so I'll leave. I, I'm going to go get the mail. Because so, we were talking. I said, I'll leave so that you can pray. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, oh, you don't have to leave. I'm always praying. Like, who says that? I'm always praying. Well, I mean, he's so saturated with this prayer. It's like his home screen. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, that's where he goes. In traffic, he's praying. At the meal, he's praying. Doing the dishes, he's praying. Driving to the hospital, he's praying. Keying my locks, he's praying. Having a conversation with me, in the background, he's praying. And, and his aura, I'm just telling you, the peace of Christ. Wow. Yeah, I'd be, I, I, could, I could stand to pray that way. And, and the promise of Romans is this. Hey, when we pray that way, God translates our prayer. So I don't, know, I don't know what to pray for, but I just pray and God prays. 
through that prayer. So keep praying without ceasing, First Thessalonians. Second, um, we have this confidence in suffering because Romans 8, 28 and 29 says God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to God's purpose. And we often quote Romans 8, 28 when someone is going through a hard time. And we say, hey, don't worry about it. All work out for the good. Can I just say to you, never do that. That's terrible pastoral care. Uh, the thing to see here is that this is still suffering. It's suffering, no question. When someone is suffering, they're suffering. But the thing is, what God is saying in Romans 28 is only understood with Romans 8.29, which is this. The good that God is working you toward is your becoming more like Jesus. It says in Romans 8.29, those that God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. So if Christ looks like this and you're here, here's the question on the table. What events in your life can make you look more like Jesus? And we would, we would say, oh, you know, devotions, you know, stirring worship service, good Bible study, you know, good prayer habits. Yeah, that's how I look more like Christ. But, but uh, you know, cancer, infidelity, you know, my own moral failure, my addiction. No, 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 those things will never, oh, no, no. Listen, here's Romans 8, 28. What does God use to make you look more like Jesus? Here's the answer, everything, everything. So this means we can change our language and drop the if-only language of bitterness from our entire vocabulary. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, oh, if only my dad hadn't died when I was 17. No. Thank you, God, that you could use that. Thank you, God, that you could use my failure. Thank you, God, that you could use my brokenness, that you could use my despair. Thank you, God, that you could use a broken marriage to teach me something about intimacy. Thank you. Like, this frees us, do you see? Because we realize that God... All we need to do is turn to God and everything becomes part of our redemptive story. And this should make us people of quiet confidence and hope because uh, we are confident not only in prayer but also in suffering. And finally, we're confident in all things because what does it say at the very end of the text? In all things, more than conquerors. In all things. So that we can now bring Christ down to the earth and become nothing less than the presence of Jesus in the world. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, in prison in Germany as a pastor, uh, someone later would recall the last day of his life. And I read this because this is really what it means to be the presence of Christ to one another. The next day, April 8th, was the first Sunday after Easter. And Dr. Punder, one of the prisoners, asked Bonhoeffer to hold a service for the prisoners. Punder was Catholic, as were several others. Uh, this and the fact that he had a new friend with whom he played chess named Cochran. Cochran was an atheist. So Bonhoeffer, being a Protestant, he said, I don't, I don't feel like I should perform a service. It was Cochran the atheist who said, no, Pastor Bonhoeffer, we need what you have to say now more than ever. The atheist. Because Bonhoeffer had done so well at being the presence of Christ, do you see? And, and, and so then Bonhoeffer preached. And he preached on... Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And he spoke on hope, and he broke the bread, and he prayed, and everyone sang. And then he prayed again, and when he was finished praying, a man came into the room and said, Mr. Bonhoeffer, please come with me. And Bonhoeffer walked away to his death, and as he left the room, uh, his friend, Mr. Best, who wrote this, he said, Bonhoeffer looked at all of us and with his head held high and peace in his heart, he said, goodbye, friends. This is not for me the end, but the beginning.
you understand how hungry our world is for people with that posture of hope? For people with that posture of servanthood? For people with that posture of unconditional love? That's your calling and mine and ours as we collectively follow Christ, bringing Christ out of heaven and into the earth, kissing the earth so that we might embody hope in our world. Father, would you meet us now as we respond? And may we respond with thanksgiving, Father, for you've given us a new identity, a redeemed body, and called us to participate in the unfolding story of hope you're writing in the world. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.